Welcome to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories from Australia and around the world. Produced at the studios of 3CR on Wurundjeri Country in Melbourne and broadcast to stolen lands right across this continent via the Community Radio Network. I'm Tisha Nahern. At the end of last year, the Commonwealth Government's Office of the Gene Technology Regulator quietly proposed to deregulate a new genetic modification technique known as CRISPR. These changes slipped by almost without notice. Lou Sales is the campaign coordinator with Friends of the Earth's Emerging Tech Project, and John Langer from 3CR's Dirt Radio spoke to Lou about CRISPR and GM regulation. So the Office of the Gene Technology Regulator is responsible, it's the Australian agency that's responsible for regulating um, genetically modified organisms in the field. Um, genetically modified organisms in our food is slightly different, that's um, Fazan's Food Standards Australia New Zealand are responsible for regulating them. Now, one particular genetic modification technique is being seen by some as a real game changer, but in terms of biotech, it could end up being something of a Frankenstein monster. It's called CRISPR, and it looks like it may have little or no regulation in Australia. You're being, you've been very concerned about this. Tell us about CRISPR. That's right. So CRISPR is a new genetic engineering technique. Um, it's only it was only developed about five five years ago. That's how new it is, um, and it basically works like a pair of mo- molecular scissors almost. Um, it will spot the bit of DNA that you want to cut and cut it. But unfortunately, like a lot of similar techniques, it's prone to not only cutting the bit of DNA that you want to, but it'll also cut other similar sequences of DNA, um, which is why scientists globally have been saying this technique really needs to be regulated. It's clearly genetically genetic engineering and it needs to be regulated as such um, because obviously these what are termed off-target effects can result in unexpected mutations, potentially the production of new toxins, allergens. Um, and if you're not regulating these techniques, then you're obviously not looking for, for these effects, which is deeply concerning because it would mean that they could be going out into the environment and into our food with no safety testing. Lou, just give us an idea now. This is a very naive question. Where where would this sort of stuff be applied? Like, you know, just give us a few examples of where where would they be using this CRISPR? Yeah, so CRISPR is being used across a whole range of different fields. Um, It's it's showing enormous promise in medicine for, for gene therapy techniques um, is also um, being applied to agriculture, for example, to make crops herbicide tolerant, um, disease resistant, those similar traits to, to GMOs, um, to older GMO techniques. Um, yeah, it's being used across a whole raft of industries. And I think what's different about CRISPR is it's much cheaper and easier to use. Um, so you can actually get DIY CRISPR kits. They're for sale in the U.S. for 500 bucks, and you can readily import them in, into Australia. Um, and there's a whole um, raft of yeah people that call themselves biohackers that experiment on microbes using um, these techniques, which is, again, something that we're really concerned about is the potential for someone to, I mean, not necessarily deliberately uh, produce a dangerous pathogen. They could do it entirely by accident and flush it down, down their toilet, and they won't know. The, um, what they've done until <laughs> an yeah. epidemic breaks out. 
So, so, so people these can buy techniques are really powerful, and and we think it's incredible that the government's proposing not regulating them. So people can buy these things online and do it at home. Is that that's is, right? Yeah. So there's a company in the U.S. selling DIY CRISPR kits for yeah five hundred bucks. Um, they're quite they're quite restricted in what you can do with them at the moment. You can basically sure. make um, bacteria glow in the dark, um, things like that. But obviously, we're concerned oh. this technique is developing really quickly and we really need to have regulation in place um, to keep to keep up with the technology because obviously the price is coming down and techniques are getting more sophisticated and, and we really need to yeah make sure that these techniques are regulated from the start. And one of the things that I, I was reading when, about this is that you can end up genetically modifying animals and if Australia That's didn't right. if it, Australia didn't regulate or has, is, doesn't go down the regulation path, we would be the first country in the world to allow this to happen. That's right. And that's, that's really quite incredible um, that, that Australia would consider doing that. And um, polls consistently show that the majority of, of people are really uncomfortable with the idea of genetically modifying animals and certainly wouldn't want to eat them. Um, but if these techniques are deregulated in Australia, they'll be deregulated not only in crops, but also yeah, in, in microbes and in animals as well. So even the US, which is a very um, pro-GM nation, I mean, they basically not really got a proper regime for regulating um, GMOs over there, but they're still proposing regulating the use of these techniques in animals. Um, and they've also, there was a, a mush, non-browning mush, mushroom that was developed over there using CRISPR and the Food and Drug Administration over there says that they want to assess it for safety before Mm. Uh, being allowed into the food chain because they want to reassure consumers that it's safe to eat. But over here, what our regulator is proposing is that when these techniques are used to make, they're saying just small, predictable changes to the genome, they don't need to be regulated. But unfortunately, as the science is showing us, um, the effects of these techniques aren't predictable at all, which is why you need to assess them for safety. Um, so what we're calling for is is really quite conservative we're just calling for the existing mm. regulation to apply to these new techniques what industry is calling for is really incredibly radical that we don't regulate these techniques at all which we just find incredible right the, the, look i i gotta say phil and i are in the studio here we're shaking our heads mm. at the at the implications of this i i really i'm actually quite stunned by all of what you're saying and and something else that i read is that uh You've been talking about the United States, but in Norway and Austria and even in New Zealand, they're they're making uh, moves to sort of think about these things. What's been going on in those countries? So, yeah, Austria, the Austrian and Norwegian government commissioned reviews of these techniques. So not only CRISPR, but some other similar techniques that work, work in a similar way. And they concluded that all of these techniques pose the same risks as older GM techniques and they need to be assessed for safety Um before they're before they're used in in the food chain, um, New Zealand actually um, last year said that they're going to regulate these techniques as GMOs, and that's largely because they're a big agricultural exporter mm. and they're really mm -hmm. worried about market rejection if mm. these techniques are, are deregulated there. Because um, and there's a clear clear risk associated with um, GMOs for ex unapproved GMOs being released into the food chain because um, 
the historical examples, like in 2015, for example, um, China blocked a billion dollars in corn mm, imports mm. from the US because of an, the presence of an unapproved GMO. And Australia could be looking at the same market risks um, if we're to go down mm. go down this path. Um, yeah, because there'll be no way, if, if there's no regulation, there'll be no traceability throughout the food chain and there's no, no way of keeping these... Um, mm ingredients out of our food, um, which is also a major concern for non-GM farmers and and people that don't want to eat GM food, like myself. Exactly. And uh, I'm I'm amazed that the industry hasn't actually taken this on board when they're thinking about these things. The view of of, uh, the Emerging Tech Project is, is, as you've just said, industry seems to be basically writing the rules. But how can people like us, you know, and I'm thinking about this very seriously right now, is how do we make an intervention in this? What what can we actually do? Well, there's actually there's public consultation going on at the moment, but again, we're really concerned that it's a closed shop. So we um, told our supporters about it, and, and a number of people tried to register for, for public consultation forums that were meant to be going on and, and were denied access. They were told that there were only 20 spots available and they wanted mm. to make sure that a diversity of views were were heard. And we, we think that really the public should have, everybody should have a right right to, to have a say on changes that are this that are mm. this big and significant and we're really concerned that the whole process seems to be completely stacked there's actually two processes that are going on at the moment there's the gene technology uh, technical review of the regulations um which is proposing deregulating those techniques but there's actually a broader review of the entire um gene technology act um and again there's a strong push from industry to remove for example the state moratoria on GMOs so states won't be able to mm. say ban GM wheat mm. if, if mm. they don't mm. want to introduce that on e- economic grounds um, mm. and we're really concerned that yeah industry is basically writing the rules and that there's a cabal of um, scientists and and the GM, GM crop industry are basically writing policy for the government. Mm. Um, it's, it's quite clearly a complete stitch up. Like if you look back to 2015, um, Barnaby Joyce um, commissioned two two inquiries, one by the Productivity Commission and um, a House of Reps inquiry as well, both into agriculture, ag- agricultural regulation and, and innovation. And they both concluded that GM labeling should be removed and that that the GM, the, the state ban should be removed as well on GM crops. Mm, um, so mm. there's a clear agenda here. Mm. Um, and we're concerned that basically the government's just implementing the policy of the big GM crop lobby groups. So if you go to our website, it's emergingtech.fo.org.au. Yeah, and, and you can sign up for updates on the campaign and how to get involved. Lou Sales from Friends of the Earth's Emerging Technology Project. You're listening to Earth Matters environmental justice stories on the Community Radio Network. Now, for an update on a campaign we brought you in 2017, the fight against the development of a contaminated site in Melbourne's north and the repeated failure of Victoria's Environmental Protection Authority. Sue Bolton is a councillor for the City of Moreland and a member of the Toxic Free Faulkner campaign. 3CR's Monday Breakfast spoke to Sue to get an update about the campaign. This campaign, Toxic Free Faulkner, began because a contaminated site was going to be developed um, uh, by a developer, not a big development, just a couple of warehouses, 
but it's in the historic memory of some of the older people about what was produced on that site. Uh, it used to be owned by New Farm, which used to make all sorts of agricultural pesticides and chemicals. But on that site, it also produced the two main chemicals of, of which make up Agent Orange. Uh, so 24T, 24D and 245T. And when those two chemicals are mixed together to make Agent Orange, they, um, they create the byproduct dioxin. And dioxin is, isn't usually found in the natural world. It's usually an entirely human made chemical and it is one of the most deadly chemicals known to humans. Um, in Melbourne, in Australia, there wouldn't be many contaminate, contaminated sites that have dioxin on them. You've got a lot of contaminated sites contaminated with all sorts of things, but not many with dioxin. And the site, there, there was a big campaign by the local residents and the Faulkner Broadmeadows Progress Association to close down the factory, which went from the late 50s to uh, the early 70s, 1974, when they eventually succeeded in getting the factory closed down. And the smell was putrid, so they had a lot of midnight and 2am protests outside the factory gates at that time when it was functioning. Um, it was, they couldn't grow uh, plants in their gardens, the paint peeled off their houses and their fences. So you've, it's a little street in Faulkner which backs onto the Merry Creek with um, factories on one side and houses on the other side. So eventually they managed to force the factory to be closed down. But then they had about another 18-year battle to force some level of cleaning up. Um, so the factory was just left there. Everyone who bought the site um, then found that it painted whatever they produced on the site. Um, and then I think what happened is Greenpeace thoroughly embarrassed the um, EPA in um, 1990 uh, when they sort of did a, a spectacular action uh, at the Laverton plant because that's where, where the company shifted to Laverton. Um, and they're still there today and they still produce exactly the same chemicals and they've still got a very bad safety record, is my understanding today. Um, but Greenpeace carried out a spectacular action which demonstrated that this company was pumping dioxin straight into the sewage system, uh, which led to a high um, count of dioxins in um, the Werribee treatment plant. And I think that embarrassed the EPA into um, doing a clean-up of the site, but it was never properly cleaned up. It was only partially cleaned up and then a clay cap whacked on top. Now, the residents believed that the site was never to be built on together. Unfortunately, that wasn't the case. Um, and they, uh, the final um, audit... Uh, said that it could be built on if it was light industrial, but it did say the clay cap shouldn't be penetrated. Um, so fast forward to today, and you'd think such a dangerous site would be red flagged by the EPA, by the local council, by all of the authorities. 
Um, but no, <laughs> that's not the case. I'm sure people in 3CR wouldn't be surprised about this. Um, so development application goes in to build two warehouses and the foundations will absolutely pierce the clay cap. Um, residents contacted me. Um, I initiated public meeting, which led to the formation of Toxic Free Faulkner. It was a really well-attended public meeting, around 100 people. And, you know, all of Faulkner's diversity turned out for the meeting, which was great. But at the council, when I moved a motion for... Um, you know, for an independent audit of the site, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it was, I thought this might even be unanimous on council, but it ended up being highly controversial. Um, I was accused of, you know, frightening mothers and fathers and their babies about, you know, uh, un unrealistic or, you know, fearful claims which had no basis and blah, blah, blah. Um, but in, from that beginning where the council, councillors basically treated the residents and me as being hysterical idiots who didn't know what they were talking about. But the group really has built a campaign, a solid campaign, and we managed to get the council all the way from treating us like idiots to the point where we managed to get unanimous um recommendation that they reject, that the um, development application get rejected because it will go below the clay cap and, and you know, once there's construction going below the clay cap, then it means um, the contamination can start to move in different directions. What and does it mean it, for, I guess, so it's got a clay cap over the area, does that mean that it just needs to stay like that, I guess forever in terms of, you know, is there a way that things can be built around there without it exposing the chemicals to people in the area and also obviously the Mary Creek as well, which can contaminate a lot of areas? Well, at the beginning of this, that's what I personally felt and quite a few of the residents felt like just leave the clay cap there, um, maybe even turn it into a park with plants that don't, ha don't have deep roots um, because you wouldn't want to plant anything which where the roots went down deeply into the contamination. But what I've found out through an environmental scientist who doesn't work in the area anymore is that even dioxin can be remediated. It's a very expensive process, but it is possible to remediate, uh, remediate the site. So I think... Um, now, we haven't really decided necessarily exactly what option we want, either, you know, maintain a clay cap or fully remediate it. But we, um, but I think probably now I'm coming around to the remediation as long as it's done properly and it's not some shonky, shonky job. Because I think while the contamination's down there, it, there's always the possibility of it leaking um, leaching into the creek and I gather one of the reasons why the site was difficult to clean in the first place I think a lot of contaminated soil was trucked away and dumped at Tullamarine, Tullamarine toxic waste dump so you know one community suffered as a result of another community suffering uh, but 
it's a fractured rock system underneath. So what happens is the contamination, you know, when when it rains, trickles down in between rocks. So they clean down till they got to the rock. But then, of course, you can't clean... Well, it's difficult to clean in between the rocks. And you need comprehensive testing because otherwise you can test in this spot and find no contamination. But, you know, half a metre away you can test and there'll be contamination between those two rocks. And the groundwater was never, ever tested by the original auditor or by the original clean-up. So there's never been a test of whether or not the groundwater was contaminated by dioxin. And one of the things we've discovered is that the environmental science scientist, um, environmental auditor field, is also... Um, you know, I gather it's a fairly small field in Australia, whereas in the US there's some environmental scientists and environmental auditors who mainly work for community groups. But in Australia the system is such that um, with development applications on contaminated sites, the developer hires the auditor, an environmental scientist, and they set the parameters of what they'll save the site of the of the basis on which the, the auditor will say the site's safe or unsafe. And so, obviously, developers are going to want to hire the environmental auditor or environmental scientist who's most sympathetic to their, or most likely to be compliant, like with a building like, surveyors. Yeah, a bit like a stockbroker hiring the person who evaluates the worth of their stock. Mm. Yeah, so the field is there. quite fraught, and I didn't really quite realise that at the very beginning. Um, so I think that's also been one of our barriers as well. So every environmental assessment, including by auditors, but not uh, in their statutory capacity, since the, uh, since the semi-clean-up in 1995... Just says, well, the site was thoroughly cleaned up in 1995. I mean, they might raise a few concerns, but, you know, I mean, basically they're not prepared to question the fact that that site, that original cleanup, was never done to today's standards and the groundwater was never tested and the footpath, et cetera. So there's massive issues there and the EPA has also played a very bad role because they played a role in the beginning of this process of convincing councillors that the site was safe as houses that had been thoroughly cleaned up. But I think as the residents have gone along and, and the residents and myself and kept on pushing this issue, um, I think the EPA has now recognised that uh, there needs to be a new audit on the site. Because one of the really things you spoke was do. about the chemicals used to make Agent Orange, which was obviously really, I guess, most famous for the use in the Vietnam War. Sorry, Sue, did, did you say that the council have decided to put a moratorium on development for the time being? Have you been successful? Well, uh, the council, we were successful in the end. Um, and I think the really, with the council, we were successful in winning them to winning them from treating us as idiots to a unanimous 
unanimously rejecting the development application. Mm. But it does really raise the issue that, and I think, you know, also with nuclear industry as well, and, you know, all sorts of um, terrible industrial practices, is if we've had to fight so hard around a site to get recognition by the council, by the EPA and everybody, um, like, what does that say about the future? Like, the you know, the fact that these governmental authorities, which are meant to, <laughs> theoretically meant to protect people, um, you know, like the fact that we have to campaign so hard to force them to recognise you know, the dangers of a site like this. This is such a dangerous site. Should have red flag warnings all over it. Mm. Um, I mean, it was originally the Broadmeadows Council then came to um, Molan Council after the Council Amalgamations. But it's each um, authority assuring each other that it's safe and, and, you know, like just not really looking added in any kind of detail at all. And so if there wasn't historical memory amongst those residents, and luckily the son of the woman who led the campaign to close down the factory still lives in the area, otherwise there wouldn't have been as much historical memory. Um, so we're going to have to start wrapping it up, but I wonder if you could just give a quick um, info to the audience about how people could get involved in in the campaign or support it, and just briefly about the VCAT? Well, there's a group, Toxic Free Faulkner. Uh, We've got a Facebook page just called Toxic Free Faulkner, and basically there is now a VCAT case uh, where the developer has taken the council to VCAT for uh, rejecting the application. Um, uh, So the council will, you know, is obliged to... Um, defend its decision to reject the application. Um, the EPA has an, applied to join the case. We're not sure exactly whether they'll be on our side or against us, but Toxic Free Faulkner has secured a pro bono lawyer to represent us. Sue Bolton from the Toxic Free Faulkner campaign and a City of Moreland councillor. You can find links and more information on the campaigns we've covered on today's show on our website. You've been listening to Earth Matters, Community Radio's National Environmental Justice Program. I'm Tisha Nahern. If you missed any of today's show, you can find our podcasts at 3cr.org.au forward slash earthmatters. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their financial support and the Community Radio Network for getting the program out to you. Earth Matters is produced in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on Wurundjeri country and would like to acknowledge that colonisation, dispossession and ongoing genocide are at the basis of environmental destruction of the lands and waters of so-called Australia and that as environmentalists we must work in solidarity with First Nations peoples. If you'd like to get in touch with Earth Matters, you can call us on 03-9419-8377. You can send us an email at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com or go to our Facebook page. I hope you can tune in next time for more Earth Matters. (laughs) 
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.